Every page across the Gospel of John is about Christ. And what we're studying this morning is not just about a woman taken in adultery. We're talking about God incarnate, about the Lord Jesus. When we study Nicodemus, it's not simply a record about Nicodemus. It's the record of one who came from above who can give you a new birth from above. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in the second part of our sermon entitled, Finding Moral Forgiveness. Yesterday, Pastor Carl addressed the decline of morality in today's culture, and today we will see that carelessness has the potential for us to become callous towards sin in our lives. Please join us in the book of John, chapter 8, verse 1, as we continue. But understand, this is an issue that Jesus addresses throughout the Gospels. Adultery is offensive to God. And God deals in a straightforward way with adultery. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Paul wrote these words, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, that's premarital sex, nor idolaters. Idolatry is anything you put above God. It might be an object. It might be greed. Paul says greed is idolatry in Colossians. Nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals shall inherit the kingdom of God. Of course, he goes on to say, and such were some of you. God can forgive anyone. But if, say, homosexuality and adultery are not sins, then there's no need for forgiveness. It's just part of life. The writer of the Hebrews says this, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. So adultery matters to God, and we'll see this morning that this text in no way mitigates against what God has written, and God is wanting and willing to forgive adulteries. And so with that said, Christ is not condoning sin like the weakened faith husband might have argued, as Augustine said. He actually addresses this sin. He deals with it in a straightforward way. He doesn't excuse what this woman has done. Now, that's an important backdrop, all right? And so you can take that and let it swirl around in your mind a little bit. And if you want to meditate on it, fine. If you don't, don't miss what follows. Three simple points on the outline. If you're taking notes there in your note-taking outline, it begins with the timing of the trap. I want us to think about the timing of the trap. So we're introduced to these events at the last verse of chapter 7. Now, remember, the chapter and verse divisions can be distracting, Uh, The Old Testament adds them. Well, there's some examples in the 4th century, but very broad divisions. But for the most part, the chapter divisions in the Old Testament were put together in the 9th century, and the New Testament initially in the 12th century, and then further refined in the 15th century. Why are they there? To help us find our way around the Bible. And especially when scrolls became codexes, books, it made it all that much more useful to have chapter and verse divisions. But sometimes they can cause you to miss the flow. So really, this whole pericope starts in 753. Everyone went to his home. The Feast of Tabernacles is over, so what do people do? They leave their booths and they go home. And by the way, if you go to Israel today, and about a third of the Jews in Israel today are practicing 
They still, every year, live in booths for a week. They get out of their apartments and they set up these little contraptions and it's pretty cool to, to look at. So everyone goes home, but Jesus, chapter 8, verse 1, went to the Mount of Olives. So on this particular night, he stays on the Mount of Olives. Now, I want you to think about the Mount of Olives. Let's say up there where Jason is with the 19 people it takes on Sunday morning to run this thing, lights, camera, action, soundboards, mixing boards, all that stuff. We'll call that the Temple Mount. Yeah, somebody stood up there and waved. I got you. And then let's say the baptismal up here is the Mount of Olives. So Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. You go down the Mount of Olives, and at the base, you're in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you keep going down, and you go down through the Kidron Valley, and then up to the Mount the Mount Moriah. So that's Mount Moriah. This is the Mount of Olives. What's on Mount Moriah? It was the place where David offered a sacrifice to stop the plague. God then specifically said in that very place where the pre-incarnate Christ appeared, the angel of the Lord, he told Solomon to build the first temple. On that very place, the second temple was built. And centuries before David ever stopped the plague, that was also the same place where Abraham offered Isaac. So this is like a really important piece of manuscript, uh, uh, excuse me, of geography. And it's up on that temple mount that another temple is going to be built during the tribulation period, if not before, that the Antichrist will defile. So if you're in the Mount of Olives, you go down. And today, if you're there, you'd still go down pretty far, but not as deep as you would have in the first century. Because among other things, they, you know, it was a garbage dump. And it kind of filled things up. But it's still quite a walk if you want to go down and then all the way up to the Temple Mount. So he leaves. He goes to the Mount of Olives. Verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. Early the next morning, Jesus goes back to the temple. And John uh, uses a particular word for early. It means early, like right at the crack before sunrise. I left early this morning. It was still dark, and the sun was just creeping up, just barely. Early in the morning, that's when Jesus is getting ready to go, and people were ready for him. And of course, if you get up early, you must be interested, right? These are interested people. Luke writes in Luke 21, 38, you might want to put it in the margin next to verse 2, and all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. Now, in spite of the opposition of the day before that you read of in chapter 7, they're not about to scare off the Son of God. He is in his Father's house, and he's there to teach the people. And we're told, and he sat down and began to teach them. And teachers would often sit down. You say, why don't you sit down, Pastor? I would if I preached as long as Jesus did. They preached for hours on end. They would preach typically four to six hours. And so you would sit down to do it because you can't get people to stand up, but they would sit down on the ground around you and they would be there. They didn't have chairs in the temple. They would sit down on the ground and the teacher would sit down as well and teach. Now, the day before, again, when the soldiers came to arrest him, they were unsuccessful. Mark 1.22 records, they were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So typically, you see the Lord Jesus sitting, not always, but like in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1, where he gives that famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. What is he doing? He's sitting down. And you just have a smidgen of the whole sermon. 
um, the upper room discourse in, in John 13. He is sitting down. When he's on the Mount of Olives and he gives the Olivet Discourse that describe all the events coming up to his second coming, what is he doing? He's sitting down. And so the custom of the day, you'd come, you'd sit, you'd learn from the rabbi. That's the timing of the trap early in the morning. All right? Point two on your outline there if you're taking notes. Let's further consider the scheming behind the trap. The scheming behind the trap. Let's pick it up now in verses 3 and 4. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. So he's there teaching in the temple. He's in the court, court of the Gentiles that Gentiles, Jews, men and women alike could go into. And there's this ruckus going on, and they break through the crowd, and they plop this woman right in front of the Lord Jesus. And they are described here as scribes. Now, this is the only mention of scribes in John's gospel, and it's a noteworthy mention because these were the experts in the law. The scribes were an order that developed after the Babylonian captivity. If you remember, Israel was all united, 12 tribes. They split, 10 northern, 2 southern. The 10 northern were carried away by the Assyrians. The Assyrians were overthrown by the Babylonians. The two southern tribes were carried away by Nebuchadnezzar. Well, when they come back, you have this new right of people called scribes whose job was to copy, teach, and explain the law. Maybe the most famous scribe that most of us know from the Old Testament is Ezra. In fact, the scribes by the New Testament era are not only called scribes, they're called lawyers. When you see lawyers in the New Testament, we're talking about the same class of people. They're also called teachers of the law. Now, we can thank God for the scribes. Because among other things, God used them to help preserve the scriptures. The problem was, is that by Jesus' day, they began to interpret the Old Testament scriptures by adding certain man-made traditions to what God has said. And so these professionals began to uh, reinterpret the Scripture through the letter of the law and not by the spirit of the law. And so they're not spoken of very highly in the New Testament, negatively. And for the most part, they were negative because they're hypocrites. Now, they should have taken this woman first to her husband, and then they should have gone to the elders of Israel. But they don't follow procedure. They don't go to the Sanhedrin, to the Supreme Court, as it were, that adjudicates matters like this. They bring her to Jesus, and they drop her right in his presence. You can see it happening. Maybe she's, you know, being tugged along, her hair is disheveled, her clothes are messed up, and... Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. This adjective, the very act, was used of a thief who was caught red-handed, so to speak. In other words, God uses this particular word to underscore that she was literally pulled away from her partner. She was caught. She was overtaken in the very act of adultery. And the crime is adultery. Moikea, it's a word that's used to refer to extramarital sex. So she's married. And by the way, she's Jewish. And I'll point out why we know that in just a moment. Now, adultery, again, is a violation of the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And these scribes and Pharisees, oh, they're not so much concerned about her committing adultery as they are wanting to take down Jesus. They've created a trap here. They're after bigger games. She's just a pawn. 
She doesn't mean anything to them. What matters to them is that Jesus comes down. And so in the brutal fashion in which they bring her, they interrupt the teaching of the Word of God, and you know everyone's like looking and stunned. Teacher, she's caught in adultery in the very act. Now the charge that they bring is a prejudicial charge right from the start. How do we know? Because if she's caught in the very act, where's the man? But they're not interested in bringing the man. They're just, maybe, maybe they made a deal with the man. Hey, look, you, you go sleep with this woman. And we won't tell your wife about the other adulterous relationships you're in. I, I don't know how they pulled it off. But they're not interested in justice. They're not interested in obeying the law. They're interested in trapping Jesus. And so the man's absence is as conspicuous here as the woman's presence. I mean, this is a well-rehearsed, well-thought-out strategy that they have because, again, they want to bring him down. So they say, look at verse 5. They put him on the horns of a dilemma. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? The innuendo is clear. Moses commanded us to stone her. What do you say? And you is emphatic in the Greek New Testament. You there, Jesus, what do you say? Now, when Jesus heard the term adultery, he knew the law well. I mean, at the age of 12, he's in the temple, and he's out thinking all the scribes and Pharisees, and they're blown away that this 12-year-old kid knows the Scriptures so well. And he knows under the law that there are three crimes that God dictated capital punishment for. One was adultery, another was murder, the third was idolatry. And so knowing the Torah, knowing the first five books, and they know that he knows it, what's your verdict, Jesus? They want to trap him. They not only want to put a noose around this woman's neck, they want to put it around, first and foremost, his neck. They were saying this, verse 6 says, testing him in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. Now, if you were here last time, we studied that God very carefully said that to stone someone for adultery, there had to be two or three witnesses. And by the way, this doesn't apply today. This was under the theocracy of Israel. Calvin thought that the church had replaced Israel, that the church was the new Israel. And so he ran Geneva like a theocracy. And so he had a guy like Michael Silveltis stone, not stone to death, burn at the stake for theological heresy. This was God preserving the nation of Israel. And she's Jewish. How do you know she's Jewish? Because when you read Leviticus 20, it is plain that this only applies to Jewish people. If you were to stone all the Gentiles who are around you, you'd be stoning folks all day. They're characterized by adulterous lifestyles. No, God said at the start of chapter 20, this applied to the Jewish people. And so in the Mishnah, it says, if the Sanhedrin condemned to death a person as often as once every seven years, they're considered to be a slaughterhouse. Remember, you had to have two or three witnesses. Now, adultery is usually done in private. And so very rarely, as the Mishnah, which is kind of a commentary on the Old Testament written by a bunch of rabbis, very rarely ever happened. But listen to Leviticus 20 and verse 10. If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with a friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. 
In Deuteronomy 22, 22, Moses wrote, If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman, and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Quote, unquote, providence. We caught him in the act. Okay, teacher from Nazareth, you know what Moses says. What do you say? Now, remember the day before the chief priests and the Pharisees are incredibly frustrated because they send their own temple police to arrest Jesus and they come back empty-handed. Now they've got a new opportunity and they have created what they think from a human perspective is unsolvable. There's no loophole in the law. Will he dare to exalt his way of thinking above what Moses has written? If he ordered the woman to be free, then he would lose the support of the people because now he was a breaker of the law. And if he ordered them to execute her, now he's in trouble with Rome because Rome had taken away the opportunity for the Jewish people to exercise capital punishment. And the only time it happened were cases like in Acts 7, if you were a lawbreaker, where they stoned Stephen to death outside the city. But I tell you, if you get caught with it, you are playing with Rome itself. So are you going to break Moses' law or are you going to defy Caesar? What are you going to do? They, they think they've got him set. The Living Bible renders verse 6, they were trying to trap him. And of course, on more than one occasion, they tried to pit Jesus against Moses, but now they thought this is foolproof. They were saying this, testing him in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. They didn't bring up the accusation to shore up justice. They bring the accusation to get him. I mean, she's a nobody in their eyes. They want Jesus. And that brings us to the third point. Beyond the timing of the trap early in the morning, the scheming behind the trap, there's the salvation from the trap. The salvation from the trap. Notice the end of verse 6, how Jesus responds. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Now, the Lord didn't initially answer them. He just simply stoops down. The Greek text literally says he wrote in the ground. If you've not dusted your furniture lately, you can write into the dust, so to speak. That's the word that's used here. By the way, there have been more books written on the Lord Jesus than any other single person in the history of the world. But he never wrote a single book. In fact, this is the only place in all of human history where we know he actually wrote something. And what he wrote would soon be erased with footprints all over it, or the winds would soon erase it. Now, with that said, you say, well, what exactly did he write? Well, for 2,000 years, men have debated this. Well, I'm going to give you a theological answer. I'm going to give you a dogmatic answer as to what was put down. And the answer is very simply, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what he wrote. Neither does anyone else. Now, there's a number of suggestions as to what he wrote, some that can easily be negated. Some say, well, he was just doodling, you know, trying to buy some time, thinking about how he's going to respond. Well, actually, there is a Greek word for doodling. God uses the word grapho that literally means to write, not to mention the Son of Man never needed to think his way through a situation. He is the embodiment of truth. He always had an answer in whatever situation he was in. Some people think that he wrote down maybe Exodus 23.1 or Exodus 23.7, where you're not to bring a false charge against someone. 
Well, they obviously have not read the text very carefully because number one, this woman never defends her innocence. And number two, Jesus knows he is guilty. And that is clearly stated in verse 11. So that's just kind of a dumb suggestion. She's guilty. Everyone knows it. The scribes know it. The Pharisee knows it. She knows it. And Jesus knows it. And that's why he says, I I condemn you no more. In either case, rather than examining the accusee, Jesus is going to examine the accusers. And while we don't know exactly what he wrote, we do know that whatever he wrote brought deep conviction to those who were there. And so while we do not know the exact content, we certainly know the, ex- the broad subject as to what he would have put down. Clearly, the statement in verse 11 and the reaction of the accusers is that he's not writing something against the woman. He's writing something against those who come to accuse him, the scribes and the Pharisees. So instead of passing judgment on the woman, he's going to pass judgment on the judges. No doubt he's indignant over the way they treat this lady. They don't treat her as someone made in the image of God. There's no compassion in their hearts. They want blood. Maybe, um, Maybe he wrote down the name of a woman that one of the Pharisees committed adultery with in Rome. And he thought, no one else knows, or someone in Ephesus. No one knows, and amen. He wrote down so-and-so's name. How did he know that? Or maybe um, perhaps he wrote down a sinful place where someone committed adultery. Or maybe he wrote down the name of a woman up in Galilee that one of these scribes or Pharisees got pregnant. We often say that secret sin is open scandal in heaven, and indeed it is. And while men can hide their sin from men, sooner or later it will be found out. Be sure of this, your sin will find you out either on this earth or in heaven. Now, the truth of the matter is we don't know exactly what he wrote, but the Holy Spirit does record the reaction of those who read down what Jesus wrote, which speaks volumes. Look at verse 7. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, again, when capital punishment was to be unfolded, as Leviticus and Deuteronomy both teach, the person who made the accusation or the two or three witnesses that made the accusation, the Scripture dictated they had to be the first to throw the stone. So if you're going to come and lay some charge so that the whole community can stone this person to death, you have to initiate, and the community will follow. Now, please notice Jesus did not say, let him who has never sinned cast the first stone. Otherwise, what Moses wrote would not be allowed because we're all sinners. So again, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. I just couldn't bring myself to throwing it away, but back in my office, I have an envelope, and in it was a rock. And this Christian counselor mailed me a rock. And he was mad at me because I suggested to a couple couples, you don't need to go to him. Why not, Pastor? Well, he's on his third marriage. And right now he's living in an adulterous relationship with a woman that he sings with in the choir every week. And of course, that church could care less. They were as liberal and still are liberal. 
So he mails me a rock. He was without sin, let him cast the first stone. Well, Jesus is not saying he that has never sinned cast the first stone. And that's how this verse is often used, where people can say, you know, like, judge not lest you be judged. No, this dovetails with what Jesus already taught in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 3, towards the start of his ministry. And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? He is clearly not requiring perfection because there could be no judgment at all. What he is requiring is there could not be hypocritical judgment. And so Jesus has already said, as I noted in John 7, 24, judge, it's a command, judge with righteous judgment. He is forbidding judgment with hypocrisy. So he's not asking that sinless men judge because there's only one sinless person who ever walked on the earth. Otherwise, the judicial benches would be empty, and yet God requires judgment. He's saying, he who is free from this particular sin, let him be the first to cast the stone against her. Otherwise, you are a hypocrite. What is he doing? He is implicating them in the sin. Hey, look, it was probably a setup, no doubt. If it were not a setup, then where was the man? And if they set this up, then they are equally guilty of adultery because they're not promoting holiness, they're permitting, indulging, encouraging sin. Not to mention an actor thought they may have already committed it. Look at verse 8. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Maybe this time in his omniscience, he wrote the name of the man who was caught in the very end. How did he know that? That would imply that the adulterous man was also guilty, and they were as well. Now look at verse 9. When they heard it, he's writing, big crowd, and they're reading what he's writing. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, probably because they're wiser, probably because they got more sin behind their name. They're the first to leave, and he was left alone, and the woman was there in the center of the court. When they heard it, uh, the King James trying to bring out the nuance of the word hear, to hear with conviction, because it was convicting. Whatever it, he said, it was very convicting. One by one, beginning with the older ones, they leave. Eventually, even the younger ones leave. And the only ones who are left is the original crowd to whom he is teaching, and this woman who's plunged right before the Lord Jesus Christ. What has he done? He's unmasked their hypocrisy. They come to shame Jesus. They leave in shame. And so here's this woman in the center of the court before the Lord Jesus. Never two more people different. She's been living a lifestyle of sin. He's absolutely sinless. If you would like to listen again to today's study, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program Finding Moral Forgiveness. 
Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you would like to help us sustain this ministry, click the Give button on our app or searchthescriptures.org. Or you can call at 877-787-7478. Please join us tomorrow as we continue to search the Scriptures.